And uh, we continue to talk about this little word that we made up, oblatunity. And uh, you, might, uh, you might remember oblatunity, this little mashup word between the word obligation and the word opportunity. You put them together, it means, or it, it, it's oblatunity, which means when, you ha- when what you want to do is also what you have to do. Or you can say it the other way, when what you have to do is also what you want to do. And uh, I wonder, have you had any oblatunities that you've noted since we talked about it? I had one last week. I thought I'd just relate to you as an example. So we were uh, on a little vacation. My parents bought this place in the villages where they go in the winter, okay, the villages Florida, which if you don't know, it's kind of like Disney World for senior citizens. so it's, uh, you know, you've never seen as many shuffleboard courts as, you've, as you see there in the villages. We'd, I'd never been, never seen their place, so we decided we'd go down and see them and check out their new place. And so uh, one of the things they have there is every night in, in the, like the downtown main square, they have concerts, like every single night. And you can just go down there and, you know, sit on a chair and listen to the music. And one night it's like polka music, and the next night it's rock and roll. And you never know quite what's, you know, what it's going to be. So, uh, so my family and I, we, we decided, hey, let's go down and just listen to one of those concerts. So we go down and um, we sit down, and they've got the, you know, the band shell and the, where the band's playing, and they've got an area in the front kind of for people that maybe want to dance or whatever. And so I'm sitting there, and... Uh, my three-year-old daughter comes up to me and says, Daddy, will you dance with me? (laughs) Thankfully, it was not polka night, uh, just to be clear. So did I I have to dance with her? Kind of yes, I did, sort of, didn't I, right? Did I want to dance with her? I actually did. I was uh, pretty excited about it, and my wife took a little video of, the, of what was going on here. I just thought for fun I would play it. So, there we go. You see Madeline in the background. She's getting down too there. So you see that? So, yeah, Dancing with the Stars. Here I come. Uh, Oblatunity. When what you have to do is also what you, what you want to do. And we applied this word two weeks ago to a command that Jesus said is the greatest of all commands. And he said this in response to actually a hostile question. It was a hostile inquiry from a religious leader who asked him, uh, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Matthew 22, and we're back there again today, if you want to go there with your Bibles, if you have one, uh, he says in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, if you remember, the Jews had identified from the Old Testament law 613 specific commands that God gave to them that they had to fulfill. And there was this intra-religious sort of debate that was going on as to which of these are more important and which of these are less important, or specifically, which of these is the most important commandment. 
And this was no sort of small debate. It sounds a little weird to us because we kind of live in this day where like, hey, you believe what you want, we, I believe what I want, and let's not get too fired up about it. Back in that day, they were very fired up about it, and this was a kind of uh, uh, nuclear type of, of question. So Jesus answers the question, doesn't even sweat in giving the answer, you must love God most You must love God highest. You must love God with all that you are. To not love God this way, therefore, is a sin. In fact, we could say it's the greatest sin because it's the greatest commandment to not love God in this way, which is enlightening and depressing at the same time because, frankly, sinners like us, we fall short of the glory of God and loving him as well. And so we look at that command, and it's kind of depressing. Like, all the time, every day, I am not loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And as a sinner, I can't do that. I'm just constantly violating the greatest commandment. And so what we saw was that not only does God command it, but he also provides for it. And one of the things that salvation is, that this work of God in our life, is that God gives us a new heart. This is known theologically as regeneration or new birth. This is what Jesus was talking with Nicodemus about in John 3, including verse 16, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, that God gives us a new heart, and this new heart can do something that the old heart can't or couldn't. The old heart couldn't fulfill the greatest commandment, but the new heart can Because with the new heart, there actually is within that affections and desires that actually want to obey God and want to love God. This is the tunity part of oblatunity. That in in my natural state, in the way that I was born, I could fake it, I could try it, but I could never sustain it, I could never fulfill it. But now as a Christian, now with a new heart that God has granted to me, I can honestly pray, I want your will to be done in my life as it is in heaven. I can pray that. I can say, hallowed be your name, and sincerely mean it. It flows from desires that genuinely want to know God and love him and obey him. Prior to new birth, this commandment was all, it's all condemnation. It's all duty. It's all like, it just reminds me of how far I fall short of who God has made me to be. But after salvation, now there is this like, hey, this is cool. This is something I want. I aspire to that more and more. And we all do it imperfectly, okay? Because we all still have that sin nature that nags at us, wants us to live selfishly, doesn't want to live uh, for the glory of God. But there is this new nature that we have that we're called to to. Uh, fan and to uh, promote in our life where more and more in my life I am striving from genuine affections in my heart to honor the Lord and to please him with my life, to, to love him truly with all that I am. And the reason this is, I think, so important is that so many people, and maybe this is you today, approach their religion simply from the abla. In fact, maybe you're here this morning, abla, like your heart's not in it. You're like, I got to go, or you're here with your parents or something like that. You're bored to tears. You can't wait for it to be done. It's all abla for you. And you think that's what Christianity is all about. And I want you to realize from the words of Jesus that Christianity is at its core about love, okay? 
This is relationship. This is desire. This is affections. This is passion. That God, and God says, and I'm going to give you a heart that can be passionate for me. Now stoke it, and that's our responsibility, right? To stoke it, to grow it, to do what we can, to love him more and more. And God commands that we do that, but it is our greatest privilege and joy in life, is to love, to know God through his son Jesus, and to live a life in a loving relationship with him. So it is, it is when we have to do is also what we want to do. It is opportunity. So maybe, maybe if you heard that message, you... Uh, you maybe went home that night and you're like genuinely or the next morning for the first time, you included in your prayer, God help me today to love you with all my heart, soul, and mind. And that was genuine to you. But then you got done with your prayer and you're like, how do I know if I do or not? Right? Like it's sort of ethereal. Love God. But how do I know if I actually love God or not? And this is now why the second thing that Jesus says is so important. Because he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers it, but he doubles down. And he answers the question that the guy didn't ask. Oh, by the way, would you like to know what the second greatest commandment is? And we find now his answer in verse 39. He says, and a second is like it. In fact, some translators want to make it say, or that legitimately can say, and the second is like as important as the first. Okay, so this isn't sort of a footnote. This is right there in his answer. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's our whole text today. Now what's again intriguing is that Jesus felt the need in answering the question about what the greatest commandment was, to include the second great commandment. And as we work through here, I'd like you to ask yourself why he did that. Why did he do that? Now, let's look at the, the command uh, just itself on the surface here. And whenever we find an Old Testament quotation, we should legitimately ask, okay, where was that found? Like, what is Jesus quoting from when he says this? And the answer to that is Leviticus 19, which I'm sure many of you were reading this week. Leviticus 19. And since many of us probably were not reading Leviticus 19, I'll just tell you, if you were to glance at that chapter, you would easily see that it is a chapter of commands that we might call like social concern or social justice. For example, there's a command in there that says, when you harvest your uh, crop, don't harvest everything. Leave a little bit there for, for the poor and the oppressed. Okay, so there's a command like that. Uh, there's another command about uh, not oppressing your neighbor, not hating your brother. And then right in there with it is this other, this command, which, you know, you could easily miss. It's Leviticus, so it's kind of like ponderously all these different commands. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, okay? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we have here now two clauses, okay? Two clauses you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's talk about both of these. And then the first one is the loving your neighbor part. And frankly, this is the easy part. In a sense, it's the easy part. Part of it's easy, part of it's hard. Uh, the love part's the easy part because there's probably nobody here that would say, you know what, I think that we ought to hate our neighbors. Most of us and most religions teach a certain 
benevolence that we ought to have for our fellow man, you know, and, and for those that are in proximity to us, that we ought to care for them and their needs and have a heart for them. There's probably nobody here that's saying, that's a bunch of baloney, right? We're all pretty much on board with that responsibility that we have for loving people that are around us. And by the way, that love is, is not just, it's not sentimental love, uh, where, you know, I, I just, I wave to them as I pull away, or occasionally I scoop snow out of their driveway. It's a more rigorous love. This is that, that the same word, actually, for loving God is the word for loving your neighbor. So it's not simply or merely sentimental. It's much more vigorous than that. But the part of the question that is difficult here is the neighbor part. Love your neighbor. Now, right now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so I wonder how many houses down I have to do that. Because <laughs> I'm comfortable going this way down the block, but the people I know this way down the block, I'm going to focus more this way down the block. Because this way are the nut jobs of the neighborhood. And I, you know, so. The neighbor part is the, is the challenging part, and it was also the challenging part in uh, the first century. Okay, who am I duty-bound to love? Could you please help me here? Give me some boundaries for who I am responsible to love. And this is where Leviticus 19, verse 18, uh, another place in Jesus' ministry where this is found and is important, a man came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay? Who can tell me the problem word in that question? I hear from the second row, do. And that's exactly right. Okay? What must I do to inherit eternal life? There is always that desire in our hearts to do something that somehow gets me to heaven or merits favor with God. And this man, he's actually a, a teacher of the law, he's a lawyer, he's an expert in the law, asks a question that has in it a fundamental flaw. And the whole story, and this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the whole story of how Jesus deals with him is Jesus focusing on his false assumption, okay? Now the way this plays out is he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, you shall love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so it's the same thing that we find here in Matthew 22. This man hears that you got to love God. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 oh, I totally love God, totally, okay? So it's not the first commandment that I'm so concerned about. It's the second commandment, okay? Because, again, his goal is to earn eternal life by doing something. And so if you are told that you have to love your neighbor in order to go to heaven, or you're thinking that, the next question that comes to your mind is, well, how many neighbors are we talking about here? Because I want to know the, what's the circle here that I have to strive and love and meet needs and so he says this, and, and, and Luke adds the comment that this man wanted to justify himself and asked, who exactly is my neighbor? 
And that's why in this little phrase, I'm saying the neighbor word is the hard word. We all sort of agree with the love thing, but the neighbor part, like, who are we talking about here that I'm responsible to love? And so Jesus, still working on his false assumption, tells the parable, we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, well, let me just give you an illustration here, okay? And he tells the story of a Jewish man who is... Uh, robbed and beaten and left for dead along the road. Okay, so there he is. He's a pile of blood. Everything's, you know, he's unsightly, unseemly, massive problems in this guy's life. And along the path comes a priest who sees him and intentionally goes on the wide path around him and goes on his way. A little while later, here comes a Levite who sees him takes the path around him, goes on his way. Now here's what's significant about who Jesus decided to include in the parable. A priest and a Levite. The priests and the Levites, this was the religious class of first century Judaism. These were the spiritual leaders of Israel, these were the people that were opening the Torah, were telling people this is the way that you're supposed to live. If there's anybody that you would expect maybe to have a certain higher level of care and concern for fellow man, it would be the religious leader. And the second thing is that both of them had to be Jewish. To serve in the temple as a priest or Levite, you had to be Jewish, descendant of Aaron. Okay, so Jesus puts a religious line on it, and he puts an ethnic line on it. Okay, so he's setting up the story, because now comes along a Samaritan. In the first century Jewish world, they hated the Gentiles, and they really hated the Samaritan. The Samaritans were the descendants from the people that when in 722, the Assyrians came and they uh, took away the 10 tribes of the north, uh, these are the people that flowed from the intermingling and the intermarriage of that whole deportation and resettlement. And so the, the Jews viewed these descendants as half-breeds. They called them Samaritans. They detested them. They uh, relegated them to kind of ghettos in, in Israel. And they wouldn't even, on journeys, they wouldn't even go through Samaria. Like you avoided that whole area because these people are beneath us. And the feelings were mutual, by the way. The Samaritans looked with uh, disdain on the Jews as well. And so you have this whole ethnic tension between these two groups of people. And who does Jesus decide to make the hero of the story but a Samaritan who comes up now upon the same scene that the Levite and the priest had seen and walked around, and here you have now, and those are the two that have the most in common with the man that's been beaten up along the road, and now comes the man who has the least in common with the man who's been beaten up along the road, and the text says that the Samaritan saw the man, his heart filled with compassion. He saw this man not as a Jew, okay, ethnic, uh, too different for me, and not as a religious Jew, uh, which was also different than the practice of the Samaritans. He saw him as a fellow human being. 
and his heart filled with compassion. And Jesus says that the man did his best to bind up his wounds. He put them on his, uh, his donkey. He takes them into town. He goes to the hotel. He pays the daily rate uh, for the hotel for a few days for the man to be taken care of. And Jesus stops and says, now, who was the neighbor? And the answer in the text is classic because they don't say the Samaritan. They say it was the man who took care of him. They didn't want to say the name. It was like so detestable to them. Like, it was that one guy, you know, the Samaritan. It was that guy that did it. Now, the reason this is so important in this story is that what we find with the man here is that being a neighbor is not so much about who I'm responsible to be a neighbor to, but to whom can I be a neighbor to? One is a calculating love, okay? I'm going to figure out who my responsibility is. I'm going to limit that circle as small as I possibly can, and I'll do my best to that small circle of people. Whereas the other kind of, the Samaritan kind of love, was not ethnically bound, was not uh, religiously bound, it, it flowed from who he was. And that's the, 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 the core thing here. It's not who do I have to be a neighbor to. That's the obligation. It is to whom will I have the privilege of being a neighbor to. That is the delight. That is the tunity. Love your neighbor. Not three doors down or two doors down, but to whomever God brings along your path. Okay? To whom can I be neighborly is really the question which, by the way, is the love that God has for us. So this love is a command. It, it's not bound by ethnicity. It's not bound by race. It's not bound by class. It's not bound by status. This is the kind of a command that condemns exploitation of people. And so we put categories of, you know, you want to talk about the life of uh, the unborn child to sex trafficking to so many other things where one man... Uh, man people group is oppressing another people group. It includes all of that. It includes racism. Love doesn't take, love gives of itself for the other's good and joy. Love your neighbor. That's the command. Now, if that wasn't like condemning enough, okay, remember there's two clauses here. Because you could say, okay, I'm going to try to love, you know, be kind, maybe hold a door, wave to my neighbor, you know, not let my dog poop in his yard, things like that. So my practice, I'm going to apply the sermon this way. Um, and you miss the fact that there is a measurement that Jesus puts out there for the degree to which we are to exercise this love. You are to love your neighbor as yourself is the second command. Okay, as yourself. Now, some people have actually looked at that verse and said, see, I'm called to love myself. And they sort of like give, get it backwards where it's like, love yourself as your neighbor. No, no, that's not what it says, okay? And this is not permission to love yourself. Jesus is assuming a certain level of self-concern and self-regard that we all naturally have, right? So for you, if you're hungry, what do you do? You feed your body. 
If you're thirsty, what do you do? You get something to drink. If you're cold, what do you do? You clothe yourself, right? You just do that. Like, you don't have to think, okay, what's the theology behind this right now? You just naturally do it. It's not a, it doesn't take, there is no command required for you to show up at the buffet at lunch today, right? It just flows naturally because we all have that certain level of self-concern. And Jesus says, if you want to know this command, you've got, what I'm saying is that the kind of love that you have and express for your neighbor should go rise to the same level of care and concern that you naturally have for yourself. Anybody troubled by that? <laughs> like, I thought to love God with my whole heart, mind, and soul was a tough one, and he's like, perfect. Now I've got to love all of the annoying, imperfect people around me <laughs> as much as I love the wonderful me? I mean, come on, who can do this, and why would I want to? Jesus actually, he takes the same principle, this measure of self, when he, it's called the golden rule. You finish it for me. Do to others as you would have them do unto you, okay? We call it the golden rule. If you want to know how, how should I handle this? How should I treat this person? Well, just think for a moment. If I was him or her, how would I want somebody to treat me? And then treat them that way. A third place this is found in the Bible is in Ephesians 5, teaching on what it means to be a husband. And husbands, listen, the Bible says that you are to love, I should include myself actually in this, sorry sweetheart, uh, that was God's amen right there. <laughs> husbands should love their wives as themselves. Apparently, first century husbands, this is shocking, first century husbands had a high level of self-interest. And Paul says, you need to be as interested in the needs of your wife as you are in meeting your own needs. That's what it means to be a biblical husband. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love them like you love yourself. Treat them in the same way that you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes. And here's why this is so helpful, because we can look at the command, love your neighbor, and we can sort of scratch our head, because I'm not sure what it means to love my neighbor, but we all have PhDs in loving ourselves, right? We are all experts in loving ourselves. We've done it all of our lives. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. He says this, there is someone I love even though I don't approve of what he does. There is someone I accept though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There is someone I forgive though he hurts the people I love the most. That person is me. Okay, We give ourselves grace for all of our failures. We give ourselves, I mean, we, you know, let's, let's just... Uh, Believe the best in me. Come on. Because I believe in the best in me. And then when somebody else does it or somebody else that's at fault or whatever, now we want to bring down the hammer. We don't want the hammer brought down on us. So when in doubt, ask yourself, how, would I, how do I like to be treated? And how do we all like to be treated? How about respect? A sense that I sense the other person sees an inherent dignity in me as a fellow human being. Fairly. Please treat me fairly. How about courtesy? Helpfulness. 
punctuality, so many other little ways that we show that other people are important to us. We care for you. When we blow it, how do we hope people will treat us? Quick to forgive, gracious. So to ask this question, who are you presently treating in a way that if you were treated in the same way, you would be offended? Who's that person? Now, earlier I said, I want you to be thinking about why did Jesus include this command or feel the need to include the command, even it's not, though it's not really what the guy was asking. And why did Jesus sort of go back into, it's almost like he had sort of this like uh, Google search in his mind where he could just race through the Old Testament and he pulls out this obscure verse in Leviticus 19 and says, this is the second great commandment. Why did he why did he do it? Well, let's just imagine for a moment, let's say that he hadn't done it. Let's say that all the gospel accounts, they all said the same thing. When, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or uh, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus just simply said, love God. That's all you gotta do is love God. What would that produce in us, right? We'd read that and we'd go like, Awesome. All I gotta do is love God. I'm so glad I don't have to love all these people around me. Because God is perfect, he's gracious, he sent his son, right? He's holy, he's wonderful, beautiful. I'm just gonna focus on, I'm, I'm gonna focus on loving God. That's, that's it. This, you know, the world is not my home, I'm just passing through. So you people that are, you know, bothering me, just, you know, get off somewhere because I'm focused on God. Or you hear people like this, hey man, for me, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's it. And all they got is this, like, vertical thing. Do they care about people? Do they care about needs? No. Why? I don't have to. All I got to do is love God. That's it. It reminds me of the story that Erwin Lutzer tells in his book, I think the title's Hitler's Cross, very interesting book, that during World War II, there was one particular Christian congregation, their church building was located right next to the railroad tracks uh, that were, were used, one of the extermination camps for the Jews. There was a railroad track that these you know, rail cars filled with Jews would come rolling down on a regular basis. And, and over time, during the war, this congregation on Sundays, as they gathered, they learned the sound of the, rail, of, the, of the train coming. And so what they would do is they would break forth in song and sing loudly until the train had passed and they couldn't hear it anymore. We're just about praising Jesus here. That's it, as the car goes by and the Jews are on their way to death. So many churches like that, so many Christians like that, right? And that's one of my fears. I love it's all about him. But if somehow we take it's all about him to mean that that is the sum total of all of our obligation is merely this vertical thing with Jesus, 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 and I, hey, of all people, right, I'm about that, I hope. I've tried to say the centrality and supremacy of Christ in all things. But it is the one that we worship, the hymn and all about him, that says the second command is you love your neighbor as yourself. 
that there is a horizontal expression of Christianity that is right there with the first commandment in terms of its importance. It is not Christianity when all we do is worship and praise Jesus while the, 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 the train cars go by to hell. We don't worry about that. Why? We just sing louder when we hear the cries of the community around us and realize that there's needs going on. No, no, we just gather. It's just, it's just this right here. And so Jesus, knowing what our human nature is, answers the question the guy doesn't ask. It says, there's another commandment you really need to be realizing here that's so important. you got to love your neighbor with the same kind of care and regard that you have naturally for yourself. Now imagine with me, this is the brilliance of both of these. Let's just say that Jesus, rather than saying, love God, love your neighbor, let's say he just said, love your neighbor. He said, that, you know, the, everything that we expect from you, speaking of the, for the Trinity, is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. What happens then? Now Christians and churches, we're all about the needs of the community around us. That's like everything to us. We're all about social justice, and we're all about practical needs, and, and we're, uh, we're involved in this and involved in that, but the vertical aspect in terms of God no longer matters. His will doesn't matter. His law doesn't matter. If you look at Christianity in the last century and what happened primarily in the mainline denominational churches, where they sort of went from vertical and horizontal to more horizontal. We're about just meeting needs around us. And to see what happened in the last century in those churches as, the, as the, the primary motive of the horizontal, which is love for God, God's love to us and our love for him, was lost in his law and his will. And you see how in so many churches, like, hey, we don't worry about God's law, right? We don't worry about that stuff. Can't we all just get along? You believe what you want, we believe what we want, but let's just meet needs around us. I get together with uh, pastors uh, sometimes, and... It's amazing to me how much that is at the core of what they're really all about. And what we see here is the beautiful balance of this, okay? Balance, we hear, and I, I'm going to illustrate it this way. Here's what Jesus is saying in this whole passage. There is a love that we have for God, and, and this is God's love first to us. We love him because he first loved us, right? We respond in love and worship to God with all our heart, soul, and mind. But that love to us has a horizontal expression. As we take this amazing love that, that, uh, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, amazing love, how can it be? And now, knowing God's grace and love to us, it fills our hearts with a kind of love that horizontally now can be ex expressed to other people. There are, there are churches and Christians where all they are is this. And maybe that's you today. And you feel sort of self-righteous about it. Did you know that I've read three theologies this week? I don't have time to be loving to my neighbor. I'm so busy reading systematic theologies. And I can quote Romans. My neighbor hates me, but I can quote Romans. There's people like that. There are also people where they're this. Okay, I am is this right here. And I don't got any of this going on here. And they're dry over time. It, it, this is, the, this is the, the fuel for this. You take this, this doesn't last very long. But together, it forms an effective witness and, an, and, a, and, a, 
and a vibrancy and a love and opportunity. That's kind of what I'm saying is that when I get God's grace and love to me through Jesus and in the cross, now I have an ongoing fuel to love those that are around me and to meet their needs in the same way that God has loved and met my needs. It's kind of like saying uh, with these two commands, which wing of the plane is most important? And some people say, I'm a right-wing Christian. So no, 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 we're more left-wing here. We think, we think the left-wing is more important. And Jesus comes along and says, it's both, okay? It's both of these. In fact, we could say it this way. We can know the degree to which we love God by how we treat people. Here's what John writes. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen and cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you see the logic there? You can claim all you want to love the unseen God, but if you treat the, your brother who is right there physically in front of you uh, in a hateful and spiteful way, you're a liar about your love for God. Come on, really? Now, I find that it's easy in this. I could get amens if I preached harder and, and was crying out for it here more. Amen, everybody. Amen. We're, oh, yeah, this is so very important. Because all of us, I think, get on board with this theoretically and ideologically and theologically. But it's hard for us in our hearts to believe that God actually wants us to love Frank next door. God can't mean him, Right? It's more the theoretical people that we are on board with loving, not the actual people that God has brought into our life and path. You know, the annoying ones. The ones that are so different than us. Not them. No, God can't mean them. It's people like us that he means that we're supposed to love. Let's work on that, sweetheart. Okay, amen. It reminds me of, and I, I can't give you the, um, the, the, the footnote on this, but uh, especially, you know, a month or two ago when there was all of these immigration protests going on and they had all the people with signs, let them in, you know, America loves you and, you know, you are welcome here and all the things. They, they went around with and interviewed some of them and, and said, so you're pro you, you say that we need to be, you know, hospitable and we need to let these people in. Yes, 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 we're here, we're protesting. And they said, would you have a refugee in your home? No. <laughs> We're all on board, theoretically and ideologically, as long as it doesn't impact my life. As long as I don't have to actually, this is what other people need to do, and I'm going to protest until they do it. And I think that's always the challenge. Easy to hold to a theoretical ideal, much hard to personally love people sacrificially. Like, we want everybody else to do that, especially towards us. And that's why I think Jesus' words here, this is the key, love God. Get what God has been in love towards us through his son, Jesus. Get that deep in your heart. Reflect that, respond to that in love and worship to God. And then realize there is this opportunity to take this love and to express it broadly in the world and people around us. 
So when we love difficult people, we, we, we reflect God's love for difficult people. And who's at the front of the line for that? Us. Crazy nut job people like us. In God's neighborhood, we're the nut jobs. No amen on that? No, that's Frank next door. It's not me. No, it's you, okay, and me. We're the hard ones to love in the, in the God story. We're the rebellious sinners. When we uh, give ourselves to needy people, we reflect God's love for needy people. And who's the most needy people in the universe? We are. When we bear with the offensive people that God puts in our life, we reflect God's bearing of offensive, sinful people like us. So here's the good news. We're not... We don't have to form a committee in our church to say, okay, where can we get this love that we're commanded to have? God gives it to us. If you're a Christian here today, you have received the love of God, right? I was, I was thinking uh, last, one of my things what I do get ready on Sundays is I, I have a hymn book that I sing through, and last night I sang uh, the, the old hymn, The Love of God. I don't know if I quote it here off the top of my head. Uh, uh, if, if, uh, if ocean filled and were the skies of parchment made, if every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole those stretched from sky to sky. Very poetic, trying to say the love of God is beyond our wildest imagination and capacity to understand. And God gives us that love and says, now show it to other people around you, your neighbor. And I, I want to convince you today that this is not just abla. Like if you walk out of here going, okay, I've got to be nice to my sister in the car on the way home. <laughs> For some of you, that would be a great start, okay? Start there. But if this is all abla, we're just heaping burdens on, I want to convince you that this is tunity, that this is where life's greatest moments are found, is is here. Jesus said this way, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Last summer, my, uh, my small group, um, we, we had finished a whole year together, and I, so we had a little time together, and I said, hey, let's all share our favorite moment from this last year in our small group. Okay, and we, you know, we had done fun things, and we had had prayer times, and we had had spiritual conversations and all those things, and so it's like, okay, which of these was like your favorite thing? Every single person said the same thing. The favorite moment that we had this entire last year was when we fed Thanksgiving, we provided and fed Thanksgiving dinner for the Epic Kids at the Geary campus on Friday night. And we had, you know, collected donations and gathered and catered and done all kinds of things and God really did some fun stuff through that. But going up there, serving them, loving them in that way, every single one of us said that was the best moment that our, that our group had. If I was to ask you today, what was your favorite moment in 2016? What would you say? Now, when I say favorite, I mean most meaningful. 
And I'm going to guess it probably wasn't something that you received. It was that present that I got. No, probably not. It probably was a moment where you gave of yourself in some way. You got over yourself. You got out of your comfort zone. You met the needs of somebody else. Those are the things that in life mean the most. And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not being an onerous judge and throwing down on us. He knows how he made us. This is a path to happiness. The most miserable person here, I don't know who this would be, but I can tell you one thing, probably not known for meeting the needs of other people. And you're miserable because you're focused on what you don't have or somebody's done to you. It's like when in my, in my single years, I would periodically be asked to speak at these you know, singles retreats, and, and I actually wrote a couple articles about this, uh, and, and I would be, I'd be asked about loneliness, okay? Big, massive challenge for adult singles is loneliness. How do you deal with loneliness? And what I would say to them is I would say, listen, if you just sit home and eat bonbons and think about what you don't have in your life, that is going to be an increasingly difficult trial for you. But on the other hand, if you begin systematically to serve and meet the needs of other people and get after that with all the energy you have for feeling bad for yourself, you're going to find somewhere along the line you forgot where you put your loneliness. It's around here somewhere. Where did I put it? I can't can't find it anymore. I'm so busy meeting these other people's needs and it's actually sort of a blessing. I kind of enjoy it. And that's just the way that we are. If you're here today and you are like downtrodden and you are like, my life stinks, why is it that way? Might it be that you have lived for yourself and discovered that you can't make yourself happy? You know, hello, God didn't make us to find our happiness in ourselves. Guess where he made us to find our happiness? In a vertical relationship with him, and in the joy of meeting the needs of other people. That's how he made us. And so guess what the greatest command is? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Guess what the second great command is? Get over yourself and meet needs of people around you. Don't just sing as the train drives by. And finally, who's the greatest neighbor that you've ever had? And you might think, well, it was Susan back on Mohawk Drive. No. The best neighbor any of us has had is is Jesus Christ. I mean, think about the the, the best good Samaritan of all time. You know, who's the most bloodied? Here, I'm mixing my metaphors a little bit. But who was in the worst condition of all time? It's a sinner apart from a holy God who has no ability at all to restore that relationship and who is condemned because of their sin rightfully to hell forever. That Jew along the road wasn't in that kind of situation, but what I've described is every single one of us, okay? And who was the good Samaritan that came along? It was a loving and merciful God who saw us in our sinful condition and didn't walk along on the other side and say, I'm gonna go jolly well on my way here, but whose heart filled with compassion for you, not just humanity, listen, friend, friend, for you. He loved you. 
and he bound your wounds, and he put you on his donkey, and he took you to a place that you could heal, known as Calvary. And he gave of himself for you. Jesus fulfilled the very command that he places to us, and Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. Joy, gladness, tunity, 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 tunity. That's what gets us motivated and it gets us going. I'm not throwing down command. I'm saying, man, this is a path to happiness and fulfillment in life. Love God first and foremost and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that. Do that. And find the joy that God intended for human beings and humanity in a right relationship with him and in a loving relationship with the neighbors around us. Let's be that kind of church, right? Let's be that kind of church. Amen. So what I want you to do is I'm going to ask you just to, would you just hang with me on this? Would you just bow your head a moment, okay? And I say that so that you can kind of personalize your feelings and not be distracted. If you just bow your head a moment, and if I, if I could personally ask every one of you, if I came up to you and said, okay, now who, who is the neighbor that as I talk about this, comes to your mind as a failure to love. And I'm going to guess many of us had somebody that came to our mind. It could be your wife. It could be your boss. It could be a brother, a family member, a former friend. Might God call you as an act of obedience and a path to joy to somehow treat that person differently. Let's use the word love, since that's the word that Jesus said. Now you might say, but that guy's my enemy. Well, we could do a different sermon where Jesus said, love your enemies. So there's no escaping this. Who might God be calling you to love? And how might you treat that person differently this week as an act of obedience to this command and as a path to joy. Why don't you just take a moment in your heart right now and ask God to give you the grace and the love that you need to love that neighbor as yourself.